Welcome to Proudly ADHD at work and in business. I am your host, Coach Kathy Rashidian, and I help professionals like you understand the science behind your unique brain so you can unlock that inner genius. Ready to transform your ADHD into your best asset? Keep listening. Welcome to another episode with Coach Kathy. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dan Roth on the show, and we're going to talk about recruitment, jobs, ADHD, transitioning, all that good stuff. Welcome, Dan. Drum roll. Thank you, Kathy. Uh, it's, it's nice to be part of this space. You know, uh, a lot of times I go on these things and I have to announce I'm neurodiverse. So if I start doing stuff, you know, that's what it is. On this one, it's nice because it's expected. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've got enough ADHD toys in my general vicinity to make anybody envious. So we're all good. Awesome. Love it. Love it. Speaking of ADHD, Dan, can you give us a little uh, peek into your ADHD journey? I actually don't know it that well either. Just in our you conversations. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because a lot of people that I talk to are getting diagnosed later in life. I'm not one of them. I was diagnosed around age seven. And there were a couple of things that they looked at with me. I have, I was originally diagnosed back at a point where there was a separation between hyperactivity and then just inattentive. So I was considered inattentive. I also had something called language processing disorder, which basically meant that I knew what I was trying to say in my brain, but I couldn't get it out through my mouth. So what wound up happening is I got bullied a lot in school because I would say things that seemed silly or stupid to some people or, or whatever. And it wasn't because I didn't know what I was trying to say. It's, I just couldn't express it. So a lot of times now that I've kind of worked through it, a lot of times I'll tell people, you know, if my, if I'm looking up, it's because I'm trying to picture what I'm trying to say in my brain. Mm. Um, if I take a long time to get to a point, I'm not trying to babble. It's I'm trying to buy myself enough time to, to get to where I'm going. Yes. So, you know, through that, I had barely passed through school but by the grace of my mother, truly is the only reason I passed through high school, failed out of college, wound up fighting, get back into it and, um, went through there and I went off medication for 10 years, decided to go back on with that when I had my kids. And that's the short encapsulation because, you know, us ADHD people, I could tell you the story for about 16, 17 days and, and not be done. How did you arrive to that masterful skill that you just explained? Which skill? The one that, that to shorten it, to condense it and give it to me so succinct because that, that is a skill. I didn't consider it succinct because there's a lot more I could have gone into, but the reality is that. I'm doing so many speaking engagements now. Mm. I've gotten accustomed to knowing how to, how to condense it a bit. I try to always have some sort of differentiating factor in the way I tell it because I don't like telling anything the same twice, but yeah, it's just a matter of repetition. Love it. Love it. That, that actually, you know, some of us, the repetition is, is, is key. And yeah, there was, I want to go back to inattentive and language processing. Can we talk about language processing first? Because I relate to that from a sense of, I didn't know that the term verbal processor till I actually went into coaching and learned, oh, this is what I do to arrive to a point. I verbal process. 
So can you just a little bit unpack how language processing showed up for you? What were some of the, you did mention a little bit of the example. So what did it look like when, when you were trying to put your thoughts together? How did it come out? So, it, and this is something I still deal with. Like, I don't want it to be, sound like it was just when I was a kid because that, that's not accurate, but it, what a lot of the people don't realize with those with ADHD is that they, most people will go through this process where they have a thought, there's a pause where they formulate that thought, and then it comes out the mouth. Mm-hmm. With most people with ADHD that I know, we have a lack of pause. Mm-hmm. So basically in, in some way, some people would reference that as saying uh, that they, you don't, we don't think before we speak, yes. but it's not, that's not our intentionality. Our intentionality is not to lack that pause. In fact, if you ask most people, they would say they intentionally try to force themselves to pause, which actually creates a whole nother problem in and of itself, because then we start talking about overthinking and really a lack of ability for somebody to just be who they are without fear of repercussion. So when I was going through school, I, when a teacher would ask a question or when I would be in social, I'd be in social situations, it just, it came out very awkwardly. And I, I can't give you, you know, any direct examples off the top of my brain, but what I can tell you is that this directly led my defense mechanism to be the use of humor Mm -hmm. because when we're talking about not having an ability to formulate our thoughts properly, it doesn't make sense in the sphere if I'm trying to be serious, but if I say, oh, I'm just being humorous, then, oh, I just messed up the joke. That's all I did. There's an inherent excuse that's built in. Yeah. And, and I don't love the fact that humor was my defense mechanism because it, it shied me away from, or it didn't allow a lot of people to get to know me mm-hmm. as well as I would have liked. A lot of people underestimated me because they thought I was just this guy that made inappropriate jokes all the time. And whatnot. And part of it was, I played into it. You get so used to having to deflect and diffuse that that becomes what people see you as. Yeah. And, it, and then you have trouble seeing yourself as anything, but, and that's a sad, it's a sad reality. Mm-hmm. Oh, I appreciate you explaining that. And, and I'm sure to the listeners, a lot of people really, cause I, I see a lot of my clients in you as, as you're explaining that I'm like, yep, yep. I hear this all the time. How does it show up? But here's the thing though, without this conversation and knowing this, I've heard you speak and I'm like, dang, he's so articulate and he just kind of riffs so good and it's tight. And, and now I'm like, huh, so interesting. But that's so, my observation, right? Like my judgment towards you, I guess, in a good well, way. Oh, it, you got to know me. I think part of the reason for that, and most people don't realize I spent the first 10 years of my career in media and it was because of my ADHD, I wound up getting into media. And let me give you a quick explanation. Yeah, do tell. Because of the fact I wound up focusing on humor so much, I got really good at lying. And yes, that's a horrible thing to say. Yeah, it's okay. But what would happen is that 
I was so desperate for people to like me that I was able to formulate exaggerated stories of occurrences or create stories out of the blue that were so, that were interesting and cool that people were like, oh, wow. And they had no idea the difference because it was just intuitive for me. So I got very used to telling stories. And because of that, when I was in school, my original major choice was business management. I couldn't do the math to save my life. Mm -hmm. when I, so when I really thought about it, the next thing I was really good at was writing. So that's what I wound up getting into. And I got, I'm a big believer in writing like you speak because everybody reads books in their heads. They're voicing yes. what's on the page. So if I could write in a way that allows them to imagine the way that I am purposely trying to dictate it, then that makes it really easy. And the third component is that I'm 37 years old. This is the first year of my life where I have felt like I have stepped into who I am as an individual. So you've gotten to know me at the point where I am most confident and most articulate about who I am and what I am doing. And that's a whole nother story. That's, you know, I got 20,000 people, well, more than 20,000 people now on LinkedIn that have kind of heard my story. And that's crazy in and of itself. But congratulations, dude, that that's like, you've arrived and it's, it's a good place to be in. But then wait till you hit your forties. Well, it's another wave that's going to come at you. I'll tell you that. No, I, I'm not that far away. And that's another thing, like aging has always scared me because as somebody that's neurodiverse, like my social was so far behind my mm -hmm. academic. So the first 20 years of my life or first 22 years of my life, I was focused on getting through on an academic. The next six or seven years of my life was focused on, oh, well, now I have the social, so I'm going to focus on the social. I'm going to forget about the academic. So I wound up screwing up my, you know, my work life for the bulk part of six years. So now, so I met my wife when I was 27, because we've been together 10 years and I still had it truly matured for another five, six years. So we're really talking about, I truly began my life as an adult once I was in my thirties. Yeah. So I'm like, there's part of me that's like, dude, 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 I got to catch up. And then my body's like, dude, you're over 30. You got no more metabolism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, like I said, wait till, wait till you're in your forties, a whole whack of other things come up. I'm already supposed to have back surgery. I don't know. Oh man. Um, Dan, speaking of the social side, let, let's go into the inattentive side. I have. There's days when I feel inattentive. There's days when I feel hyperactive. There's days when there's both. And I had Dr. Barkley on the show and he's like, stop categorizing. It just, everybody is, is a bit of everything at whatever time and situation. Okay. But those of us that sometimes the inattentive really comes out, how did that show up for you in social settings or in, in any other ways, whichever way you want to take it. But I want to kind of go into the inattentive side sure. of it. The inattentive for me manifests itself almost exclusively in the personal. So what I mean by that is we talk about ADHD in relationships. Well, I'm the guy that will start cleaning one thing and then get distracted and go to something else or something will be on the floor right in front of me and I'll completely bypass picking it up. Yep. Um, I am the person that will have their side of the bed messy as hell even though there is a hamper a foot away from me. 
And that, you know, quite frankly, that is where the majority of my inattentive came out to play. Was there a portion that came out of my work and whatnot? Yeah. I wasn't always good with details. I've had more people than I could name say, Dan, you should run your own recruitment agency. No, why not? Because I'm not a detail guy. Like I'm a detail guy in like what I'm doing with people, but I'm not somebody that can keep the books. I'm not somebody that could, you know, I, I miss things because at a certain point my eyes get tired and I just lose focus. I love that. I love that self-awareness and knowing this is my strength and these are the areas that I'm just like, whatever. <laughs> Well, and I don't even want to call them weaknesses. It's just like, does, doesn't no, work for me. No, it's not a weakness. But, no, you know, I, I think part of the interesting aspect of my, my journey and the reason I have such a high self-awareness is because for a long, long time, I thought I was going to be an ADHD coach. In fact, David Quirk, who founded the ADHD coach. Yes, my mentor, my dear mentor. He's on the really? show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know David. He, yeah. he I was trying to get in to the coaching academy for, for a while. And at the time that was kind of when I had put things off on the side and David and I jumped on a call. He sent me an autographed copy of his book. One of the nicest guys I've ever met. Mm -hmm. One of my big regrets in life is not following up with him because what an icon. Yeah. And for those that don't know who we're talking about, please, please, please look up David. I don't think he knows how much of an impact he's had on me, but if you're listening, David, I, I owe more to you than you, than you are going, than you could possibly realize. And I still wish uh, a large part of me would have continued and been able to take the time to get that 80, uh, ADHD certain coaching certification, if for no other reason than for my own knowledge, my own ability to be a better human being. Uh, that got, now that was ADHD. That got me off track. You, you know. I know we went divergent there for a second. Yeah, like, no, okay, no, bring no. it back. So the entire self-awareness thing. There, that's was, it. Yeah. It was because, you know, there were two, there were two faculties. One is that my ADHD caused serious rift between my mother and I, she was a teacher. She. She didn't know what she was doing wrong. She much did she not realize she wasn't doing anything wrong, but it created a bridge that took a long time to fill. So when I got old enough to realize, and I think I was seven or 18, when I really started to come into my own ADHD, I said to myself, if I can help other families not go through what I went through, that that would be that that's something I really need to explore. So I became very self-aware. I actually wrote a book. It was never published, but I wrote a book about it and, and really had to focus. But the way that I look at it is if I don't step out, if I don't say, hi, my name is Dan, I'm neurodiverse. If I don't say, hi, my name is Dan, I'm a neurodiverse recruiter, mm -hmm. then other people won't have the courage to do the same thing because we're still very behind. Yep. And not a lot of information is known. If you look at the percentage of doctors that actually specialize in neurodiversity, it's very, very small. Most doctors have no idea how to work or, or help people with ADHD. So truly we have to be our own support system in our own community because there's nobody else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well said. 
So uh, let's go and shift gears, if you don't mind a bit, when go into the career side of things. Yeah. Um, were you always in recruitment or how long have you been in recruitment? I was, I did the very ADHD thing. Well, I, media first. I started media. Then I went into telecommunications when I moved out to California. From telecommunications, I fell into healthcare. From healthcare, I got into project management. I love it. And I was really good at both. But when my children were born, I, and I have twin, uh, twin two-year-old girls for those that are in the audience, it was a very, very, very rough pregnancy. And they were born in 2019 and right at the beginning of the pandemic, I took a job as a regional manager for, uh, project managers and two things happened and I'm very transparent about this. One is that the pandemic, but the second is that I went into male postpartum depression and burnout. Mm. So when I lost the job, I was trying to get, I was, I was like, okay, I'm 36 years old. I don't want to pivot. But as a last stitch effort, I wanted to social media. I said, I went on LinkedIn. I said, hi, I, I decided to be, I hate the word authentic because I, I believe authenticity has to be like, you have to call me authentic. I can't call myself authentic. Yes. Thank but you. But I went on um, social media and I said, okay, I, I'm tired of hiding because for a lot of people that are neurodiverse, job seeking sucks because we are very good portraying neurotypical yeah. until we actually get into the job. Yeah. And then it becomes like a bait and switch where we take longer to learn. And then the employer is like, well, this is not the person that I hired. Mm -hmm. So I said, I went on video. I said, hi, my name is Dan. I'm neurodiverse. And if somebody's not going to hire me because of it, I don't want to work for that company. And very quickly I built up an audience and I found gaps. So I, there was people that were making job kit, uh, this uh, networking posts. Nobody that was connecting job seekers to recruiters. I created a post based on Caroline Christie's networking post, but for job seekers to connect job seekers to recruiters within three weeks at like 18,000 views. And through this, and this is the cool thing about neurodiversity. We are so accustomed to thinking six steps ahead yes. where some people, where some people like that's a problem because I was thinking six steps ahead. I created this platform, but I was also thinking how, if I'm going to do this first, it's going to help me connect to recruiters, but I'm also going to get, be able to help other job seekers. But I'm thinking, okay, who else can I, can I connect to that's going to help these people? How can I diversify my network? So I started going through these, all these different iterations and it manifested. And then I wound up, wound up getting a coach and. At a certain point, I said, okay, I got to get out of my own way. So I decided to come over for six weeks after pivoting into recruitment, I landed at Amazon. And quite frankly. So, so who, who went into Amazon? Well, who was the Dan that went into Amazon? The most complete Dan I've ever known. Mm -hmm. And yes, I'm, I need to kick myself in the tailbone because I'm talking in the third person right now. So there were a couple of things that happened. One was when my children were born. I thought to myself, if my girls asked me, could they be anything that they want when they grow up, what would the answer be? And at that moment I said, I, I couldn't answer them. I couldn't say you could be anything you want because the society is not set up to support women and minorities. Yeah. 
So at that juncture, I said, okay, I need to do everything in my capacity as a father is my obligation so that by the time my kids get older, they're in a better position to succeed. So I started working for the first of my life, instead of shying away from problems, I faced them head on. I was working 20 hours a day, seven days a week while being a full-time parent while my wife was working. Mm. And through this and through pivoting into recruitment, recruitment allowed me to do everything I loved. I got to help people. I got to put people in jobs. I got to work with women. I got to work with minorities. I got to work with people that weren't given the same shot. And I got to help people that were in the same position that I had been. And we always talk about that moment when it clicks. I don't know that if, that I recognize when it clicks, when it clicked, but all of a sudden I felt like I had finally reached the potential that everybody seemingly saw for me, except for me. The Dan that is here today is not the Dan that was here six months ago. And the Dan that was here six months ago is not the same Dan that was here three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. This was a long process, but I'm here as certifiable proof that those that are neurodiverse, those that are minorities, those are whatever can do it. We just have to change the narrative of how it's being done. So I didn't go into Amazon trying to be an Amazonian. That's right. I went into Amazon saying, I am not here to be anybody else. Mm-hmm. We are not doing things the right way. Mm-hmm. We need to shift our focus. We need to help those that are neurodiverse be put in positions to succeed. We need to help minorities and others that are diverse be put in positions to succeed. And I don't care what I have to do. That's where I'm going. Love it. Mic drop. (laughs) I love it. You know, with that conviction comes a little bit of, and then I'm tapping into my past clients. Well, what, what if they say no? What if, you know, what if I don't keep up? What do you say to that is, is when somebody's figured it out, like they're like, okay, I'm standing my truth. I get it. I'm good. Now, where do I go? I'm not good because the second that you say that I'm done. Mm -hmm. You're not done. Yeah. You've lost the entire point of it. When I, you know, I always talk about this, but when I started in my DEI journey, and I don't call myself an advocate. I've been labeled an abolitionist. And but when I started my DEI journey as a white individual, and by the way, I'm Middle Eastern, but I call myself white because that's what I appear. That's another story. There was a woman by the name of Future Kane, and she did sugarcoat things for me. She said, Dan, you're going to be the only person sometimes in a room where you're, sorry, you're going to be in a room where people on either side, don't like you. You're going to have white people that are going to think that you're, that you're selling out. And then you're going to have black people that are saying, where were you for the last 450 years? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I got that. And and I understood that. So I'm not, there is no end when the goal is so big Mm -hmm. and we never stop growing. Tell me, you name an ADHD individual that has successfully stopped in their track and said, this is everything I need to be, you know, and, and I'll show you a golden unicorn that, 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 that shits my castle. It's right. just, uh, I apologize. I from Jersey, I have a bad mouth. That's okay. I, I do it here in the show all the time. Okay, no, <laughs> You're no. free to, but you know what, it, what it, it's, it's interesting because 
I'm still, I still get surprised from, well, what if it's not the right job? I'm like, okay, then you quit and go to the next one. You know, there's still this, this, this belief of I need to land the job. But, okay. So, but that's a fundamental flaw. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and here's what I mean by this. What part of uh, is the flaw? The, the flaw is that thought process because mm -hmm. here, here's the deal. And this is one of the things I'm trying to change the narrative on when it comes to recruitment. Mm -hmm. There, in the last five years, there, there's been a decline or an acceptance in the, in people being in jobs for shorter period of times. That's bullshit. Here's the problem. As recruiters, we are not doing a good job of working with job seekers to identify what they should be in. Right. As a recruiter, I don't do 10 minute interviews. I will sit there with somebody for 30 to 40 minutes and I will talk to them about their life. I'll ask them about their family. I want to understand and build a relationship because without that relationship, I have no ability to ultimately know whether or not the environment that I have the opportunity to place them in is right for them. We can't be afraid to say as a recruiter to say, okay, I don't think this is going to be the greatest fit for you. I think you should go somewhere else and then give them a recommendation. At the same time, I don't think the job seeker should be, and I'm going to use this term and I want your audience to forgive me. I don't think that job seekers should be so desperate to take any job that they can. Absolutely. Now I understand that finances are tight. I am not saying that it is not difficult, but if we do a better job in our communication between the recruiter and the job seeker, then at the end of the day, you're going to be put in the best position where you don't have to worry about being there a year from now because you have the long term to look at. Mm -hmm. I love that. And as a coach, the way I, I kind of navigate that with them is, you know, there's this idea of who are you, what are your skills, what are your strengths, and all of that stuff, and to really put it under the microscope, and and go in with the with the permission to interview them instead of them interviewing you, give yourself that permit. It's like a marriage. Like you're going on a date. You don't marry the person. <laughs> First date is, do you even want to work for them? Do they have the right ethics and culture? Is the culture make sense? And I don't care if it's like 80,000, 90,000, 100,000. At the end, you know, we've, we've been in, I'm sure you've been in that place too of we make the money, but we're miserable as fuck. And it's like, it's not about the money. I just can't. But that's another problem. And that's something I coach people on. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't know how to make money. Mm. And, and here's why I say this. With the exception of white males, and I'm, I'm just calling it like I see it. Mm -hmm. Most people do not do research on what their title should fetch in the open market based on their location. People have this tendency when you ask them what their range is to say, okay, I'm making 50,000 now. So if I ask for 70, that's a decent bump, right? But I can't tell you how many occasions I've had this happen where I've then done the research and found out that the average for that position in their location was a hundred thousand dollars more than they asked with the bump. Yeah. Now I want to clear something up. I don't want to leave this out. You asking for the median average of your role and your location is never you asking too much because the data is backing up that that's what you should get. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, 
if you're making 50,000 and the average is 150,000 and you ask for 250, we need to have a talk. But if that's where the average is and the company comes back, well, we don't want to pay you that. Well, this is what everybody else getting paid. Then we have, mm -hmm. then that's a problem on behalf of the company. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't want to work for that company. <laughs> Give me three, three tips on we're sitting in an interview. I have ADHD. I really want this job. How can I set myself up for success? First, you need to, what I'm about to say is going to be hard for people. It's okay. I say a lot of hard things on here. <laughs> Lay it on. <laughs> we need to be better at acknowledging when a position is right and wrong for us. So you're in this spot. When we have negative feelings that boil up in the pit of our stomachs as job seekers, we have a tendency to ignore them because we feel like we're not going to get a next opportunity. Mm -hmm. My encouragement to those that are listening is that is fear taking over. And it's fear that has been placed upon you because society has created the wrong expectations for what to expect and what not to expect. Society has put you in a position for your mental health to be at risk. So trust your gut more. Second thing, and I'm going to focus directly on the ADHD now, make a company fall above with you be your best self. Then when you get to the hiring manager, do not be afraid to say, I am neurodiverse. I need accommodations. Get them built into your contract. A lot of what I have to say on this, I want to be very clear is derivative of Monique Arrington, who's one of the top recruiters in the world with DEI. And I want to make sure that I give my hat tip to her on that statement, but company, it, it costs more for a company to find a new employee than to make accommodations once they're in the role. So if you know that you need to get up and walk around, if you know that you need a standing desk, then you should be able to ask that. If you need to take a break every hour, hour and a half to walk around, then you should be able to. And by the way, the data proves that 88 minutes is the most amount of time that an average person could focus at full capacity mm -hmm. or having a, a fall off. And then we're supposed to be taking 10 to 20 minute breaks. So there should not be an issue with the accommodations. The fact is, is that the Americans with disability asked to protect those that was that have anxiety and depression. While there is still bias in the workforce, it will take brave individuals, perhaps some of those that are watching this podcast to step up and not settle for a company that is not willing to make those accommodations for organizations to take notice and, and truly become neurodiverse friendly. Mm -hmm. So let's do it. Didn't answer your question directly, but you know. Yeah, you did. So there's two. So we got the trust your gut. Ask for accommodation. What's up? Um, oh, and then come in researched and ready to throw out. Uh, the, the offer that makes you happy. Do not be willing to settle. Statistically, 
women get 80 cents on the 82 cents on the dollar compared to every white male, black women get 58 to 68 cents. And I think it's right around 70 something cents for, for black males. I am here to tell you to get paid. We should not be settling for that. You should not be settling. Sorry. I shouldn't be saying, all right, that is not something you should be settling for. You are worth that dollar 30 on the dollar. You are worth getting paid what you feel is the right value for the services that you bring. And you should be getting paid without having to worry about how your differences, how your uniqueness is going to be affected. So good. I want to go back to asking for accommodations because that one, that one brought up some emotions for me. I'm with you. However, what do you say to, well, there's so much stigma out there. If I ask for it right there, it creates judgment right there. It creates this, like, they're going to use it against me eventually. How, what's your opinion on that? Well, that's why I mentioned write it into the contract, because if you write into the contract and then they come back at you later on down the road, then they're, they're in violation of their breach of contract. Mm-hmm. Now. Will every company use every angle under the book to get out of that? Yes, they will. But here, here's the best. First of all, there's two, there's two things I'm going to say. One is that regardless of which, if we do not do this more as a community, Mm -hmm. we will never change things. So there will be have to, there will have to be people like me that put themselves at risk. Mm -hmm. And I use that term seriously at risk. It is in order to make change. The second thing is, and I want to, I want, I'll start, I keep saying the same things. I hate that. I want to be very clear when we put ourselves in the best position to succeed through accommodations, then those companies are going to get the best ROI for the higher. Yes. Right. So you are going to make them more money. So they, if you are in your best facility. There should never be a question of whether or not you're doing your job. There should never be a regret. And then I guess the third component is I don't believe that we're ever going to go back to a fully on-site workforce. Mm-hmm. And I think that can only benefit those that are neurodiverse because let's, you know, so let's be real when we are in our safe spaces, we are, we accelerate the most. I have worked at home for five, for, I guess now it's seven years. And the reason I originally started working from home is because I got tired of people looking at me differently based on my neurodiversity in the workforce. I had anxiety. I, I felt like I was getting sick all the time because the pressure I put on myself to, to appear neurotypical was overtaking my capability of doing my job. So I started working from home. And it was the best decision I ever made. And being working from home does not mean not socializing. It means that I get to be the best version of myself because I'm in my comfort zone. Yeah. What do you think is going to be better for my morale going in and getting, and the company bringing in, you know, pretzels and bagels into the room or going and seeing my twin two-year-olds and immediately smiling. And then coming back to work in a better frame of mind, especially on days where it's particularly hard to deal with. Totally, totally. I, I relate. And so 
two things comes up for me. I want to just add a different perspective, if I may. The the, the working from home thing. I, I, I want to acknowledge those that actually done on the other side of it for those that are on the social side that need the interaction, the the hyperactivity side, the water cooler chats, they're missing it. It's it's really so. So for me, I look at hybrid because also they, they do want to retract and go into their caves. So the hybrid approach really works. The other piece around the the disclosure, I always like to say, in addition to what you're saying is come from a place of know your your strength and say it with with like own it. And not from a place of, oh, it's because of my ADHD, I can't sit still. Well, because like, don't blame the ADHD is coming from a, so, so seek language that, in, that is from a place of empowerment so that you can explain yourself or articulate it in a better way versus I'm ADHD, I need to fidget. Like uh, those phrases really bug me because I'm like, no, it's you're fidgeting because it helps you to focus. It's a different way of framing that. So yeah. when you frame it in a way that's beneficial to them, what's in it for them, and then also because of this, then I can do this. So and in our group coaching, we talk about that is we, we go through a whole module around uh, self-advocacy and the language. So if anything, as our listeners are listening, seek to come up with language that's empowering. And then that cl- disclosure becomes so much more powerful. Like for me, I can't sit in front of a window. Do not put my office in front of a window. I have light sensitivity. It just doesn't work. Plain. I don't even have to say it's ADHD. I'll be like, it's just light sensitivity. So some of it doesn't have to be the diagnosis. It's just the way you're operating, I guess, and, and the way you're processing. Dan, thank you so much for your wisdom, for your just truly being you and sharing. And you have such a big heart. I've seen you at work. I've, I've heard your conversations. I, it's been a pleasure getting to know you. It's been a pleasure as well. It's been such a pleasure. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, folks, until next time, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Dan Roth. And um, I'll put in the show notes his, his LinkedIn profile. I wish you all a great rest of your day and keep on shining.